Pobre meico, te lleos de Dios y tan cerca de los Estados Unidos. Poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States. Attributed to Porfirio Diaz. Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast Episode 10, The Most Unjust War. Today, we'll begin our look at the key events that truly began the road to the Civil War. Up till now, we've had the luxury of discussing the culture, technology, society, and government of these United States. So did the people who lived at the time. The Mexican-American War changed all that. We may get back to some of those sunnier topics, but the series reflects the shift in focus in American society that resulted from this war. The Mexican-American War had immense impact, both good and bad, and every leader in these respective nations paid close attention to the increasing tensions. President Polk expertly manipulated his way into a conflict he believed could be won, and when it he would, or at least his top commanders in the field would, which had its own consequences. However, since this isn't the History of Rome podcast, we don't get the story of how General Taylor conquered Mexico, heard the army hail him as Imperator, then marched on Washington to defeat Polk, but in turn be swiftly overcome by General Scott with many suicides and bloody last stands all around, while the Senate schemed behind everyone's back. As cool as that would be. Instead, the Mexican-American War is one wild story on its own, and while almost entirely forgotten today in the United States, it became one of the most surprising and decisive conflicts in world history. By the end of the campaign, some 529,000 square miles of the West had exchanged hands, including part or all of seven current U.S. states. The combination of speed and success shocked great European statesmen and observers, and changed the direction of Mexican history as well. Remember, too, that this occurred only a generation after Waterloo, yet the United States made a more lasting conquest than any power in Europe. Polk's path to this victory did not start with the sword, but rather with the pen. As with Oregon, Polk masked his intentions so as to surprise everyone. In Oregon, he had simply used the implied threat of war, which he never intended, to make a favorable diplomatic gain. In Mexico, however, Polk played a much more complex and violent strategy. It isn't that Polk immediately planned to spark a war to get what he wanted, and his initial methods included commerce, espionage, and negotiation instead of fighting. But war was always the ace up Polk's sleeve. Now, last time, I did simplify the story as we approached the end of the Tyler administration. After the election of Polk, President Tyler still had several months in office, because the inauguration in those days happened in early March, not January. Since the country had, in effect, just held a national referendum on the annexation of Texas, Tyler hoped to push it through immediately, and thereby obtain some of the credit. Now, Polk, in fact, wanted this as well, and even quietly visited Washington to suggest a method. Even while Taylor dispatched agents to Texas and Mexico to try and smooth out the process, the House and Senate passed separate bills in order to deal with the annexation idea. Now, Tyler tried to defer to Polk on the substance of these, but for whatever reason, Polk just didn't respond. So finally, Taylor acted and signed the House bill, which Southern pro-slavery Democrats preferred. On March 3, 1845, Taylor sent Texas a formal invitation to join the United States. Polk took office the next day, and would immediately begin an aggressive courtship of Texans. Now going back to that topic, it should be noted that Anson Jones, the last president of the independent Republic of Texas, and the quintessential Texas icon Sam Houston, both wanted to make a play at becoming a separate continental power. They even looked at the possibility of expanding towards the Pacific coast, over the same lands that Polk desired, hopefully with backing from Britain. The Texas legislature, however, probably believing that a separate Texas would sooner or later fall prey to Mexico and or would be unable to consolidate territory, with both the United States and Mexico knocking at their doors, eventually chose annexation instead. In the middle of all this, Commodore Robert F. Stockton, the very same man who had cast the peacemaker for his beloved USS Princeton, and whose faulty work nearly killed President Tyler, sailed into Galveston Bay. 
He arrived with a small fleet carrying out a mission more diplomatic than military. Now at this moment, it was still not entirely clear how the average Texan thought of the issue, or at least it was not clear in Washington, although Stockton soon determined that most favored annexation. He also discovered how to cause more than a little trouble and nearly set off a diplomatic incident by meddling in Texan politics beyond his authority. Nevertheless, this may have inadvertently worked to his advantage, and a last-ditch effort by Mexico completely failed to persuade Texans to refuse annexation. In June, the Texas legislature unanimously voted in favor, and by December of 1845, all the details had more or less been worked out and Texas joined as a full member of the United States. Indeed, even granting that its boundaries were for the moment rather vague in the South and West, it was still the largest state yet seen, though far from the most populous. This immediately created a major diplomatic issue between the United States and Mexico. Not surprisingly, Mexico's central government had never formally recognized the loss of Texas, insisting that it was simply a province in revolt. You may imagine this turned the annexation of Texas into an instant international incident, but you would only be half right. Obviously, the annexation and integration of Texas became a diplomatic issue in Mexico City, but on its own did not lead to direct conflict. In practice, Mexico had postponed serious attempts to reclaim Texas for the time being, and at the moment the government was slowly realizing that it might not be able to match the rapidly strengthening United States. This represented a massive reversal of historical fortune. At the time of the American Revolution, Mexico was a vast, populous, and powerful territory within the enormous Spanish Empire, and far larger than the fledgling United States. However, years of revolutionary war had sapped Mexico's vitality. The population in Mexico, in fact, declined in absolute terms during the ongoing conflicts with Spain, internal revolts, and Mexican aggression against Central America. To clarify the latter issue, well, in the episode on the Texas Revolution, I made mention of a commander named Iturbide. Iturbide was a general who eventually accumulated enough power to name himself Emperor of Mexico, but toppled from that power in short order. But during that time, he formally annexed Central America, or claimed to. This, however, accomplished very little except to thinly spread Mexico's resources, and that region broke away amidst constant low-level violence around 1840. Now, I say around 1840 because then as now, Central America wasn't united, and different colonial groupings formed their own liberation movements. Each of these formed the modern states in the region. The Spanish Empire had developed many independent colonies that often worked directly with Madrid, not necessarily in large regional combinations and events proved that they retained their separate character even after independence, which would prove vital to American efforts. The core power base of Mexico included a strong but relatively narrow section of the country. In this light, it is less surprising that the seemingly vast Mexican state was unable to firmly establish itself against even small rebellions on the frontier. The wealthy and populous central regions of Mexico found their authority only went so far outside of it. The words of men trying to rule from Mexico City carried very little weight beyond the mouth of a cannon. Outlying regions could only be governed by their own acquiescence, and that loyalty had arguably never been granted to Mexico as a national identity in the first place. This might have worked if that central region had been tightly united. But Mexico remained deeply riven by competing ideologies and factions within those ideologies, so it ultimately lost control over many of its outlying regions. For instance, California hardly deigned to notice Mexico proper unless its people wanted something, which they generally didn't. Nobody outside New Mexico particularly took note of it, and the Yucatan often felt little loyalty to whichever warlord claimed to rule in the center. Adding to these woes, we can add the economy because Mexico just didn't have enough problems to deal with. With the ongoing violent conflicts, people weren't about to invest. With trade down and many dynamic would-be entrepreneurs from Spain forced out of the country following independence, Mexico's economy contracted severely. The fighting in Mexico never really stopped as political disputes constantly spilled over into military skirmishes. This all led to exhaustion and disaffection as the promises of the revolution had turned to ash. 
though this one issue alone may have been the key weakness that will lead to their defeat in the upcoming Mexican-American War. The country simply couldn't sustain yet another long conflict. In fact, prior to the Mexican-American War, northern Mexico faced constant threat from raiding parties, particularly though not exclusively the Comanche. Far from dominating or influencing the neighboring tribes, Mexico actually fell under pressure itself, a fact which was by no means lost on President Polk. It was in this political environment that Polk dispatched a diplomatic mission which can charitably be described as supremely undiplomatic. As in, Mexico outright rejected one of the commissioners, a man named Parrott, whose brother had previously openly antagonized Mexico when serving as a diplomat. Polk didn't even bother providing the two with official diplomatic credentials. Suffice it to say, this was not a good start, although that also worked for Polk. It didn't get any better when the commission actually arrived in Mexico. In theory, the commissioners Slidell and Parrott were intended to settle the question of Texas's borders, achieve recognition that it was now part of the United States, and ideally purchase Mexico's claim to a huge swath of territory up to and including California. In practice, the group tipped Polk's hand and did nothing more than infuriate the Mexican government, and probably did not help that part of Polk's offer was a promise the United States would take on debts from Mexico to private American individuals. And then the commissioners in general, and Parrott personally, claimed massively inflated debts. In any case, Polk's offer of $25 million was completely and perhaps insultingly unrealistic, despite the deep financial disarray of the Mexican government at this time. That's perhaps $1 billion in modern currency, for all the West. Not surprisingly, Mexico refused to even formally receive the commission. Now, before we move on, we need to explain who in the world was even nominally in charge because Mexico had experienced rapid changes in leadership during the 1840s. And that means it's once again time for our old friend Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Following his capture by Texans in 1836, Santa Ana had been shipped off to the United States as a convenient neutral destination. There, he met with Andrew Jackson but did eventually return to Mexico. His career probably appeared dead forever, but he found an opportunity to reclaim his good name during the ridiculously named Pastry War against France. I will spare you the absurdly long explanation, but let us suggest that history rarely offers examples of wars fought over donuts. The really short version is that in 1838, France seized a pretext to invade and occupy Veracruz, which just so happened to be Santa Ana's home ground. He offered his services to the Mexican government at the time and helped raise and organize an army, later fighting the Battle of Veracruz. He lost the battle, he lost a leg, and Mexico paid a small fortune to send the French away. But in fighting for his people, Santa Ana achieved a victory of public support and recognition. He had literally bled for Mexico, and the people did not forget. Several years later, he returned to power to help out the struggling Bustamante government which had fought off and then bought off the French, only to bog down against yet another rebellion. In office, he pursued, among other things, a policy of constant low-level pressure against Texas, a war of raid and counter-raid. This not only hardened attitudes in Texas, it also brought the Texans considerable sympathy in the United States. Santa Ana abandoned and retook office as the mood or need struck him, but in 1844 he left the scene after having sparked more rebellions under almost identical circumstances as he had the last time around. Santa Ana fled to Cuba, but in his place left the short-lived Herrera government. Now, reuniting with our main story, the only significant outcome of the Parrot Commission was that the Mexican government fell yet again and was replaced by the Parade administration in yet another half-military, half-political coup, occurring in December of 1845. Although the Herrera government resisted meeting with the Americans over Texas and the West, they didn't refuse strongly or publicly enough in the eyes of many. Herrera understood that Mexico would have a hard time fighting a major war against the United States, because for the last decade there had hardly been a moment when there wasn't at least one substantial domestic army running its own small civil war. Paredes, for his part, cleverly rode this wave of discontent to the Mexican presidency, only to discover that Polk wasn't merely playing, and he, that is, Paredes, had just publicly refused diplomacy at all even rejecting any negotiation simply over the border of Texas. Naturally, 
you'd assume that Polk, in response, would promptly begin planning for a military campaign. Except, no, he didn't. Polk apparently did believe that his diplomacy could work, maybe with a small show of force. However, even after he failed and he schemed to spark a war, Polk avoided making any military preparations. That would have required an actual conflict, and he didn't have one. Furthermore, while many Americans wanted to acquire and incorporate the West, they did not intend to fight an offensive war of pure conquest. Even very expansion-minded Democrats shied away from the brute logic of power politics in that regard. So instead, President Polk simply ordered General Taylor to the disputed region. Polk had been preparing for this specific move almost since Inauguration Day, and now his plans unfolded. To clarify the whole issue, remember that Texas at this time claimed that its borders extended to the Rio Grande as per their treaty with Santa Ana. However, in Spanish and Mexican Texas, those borders had only extended to the Nueces River, which indeed served even at this time as the practical border for Texas. Beyond that boundary, few people lived until the traveler reached the Rio Grande and the port of Matamoros. Mexican power likewise looked much firmer south of the Rio Grande, and the disputed region had become the scenes of Mexican guerrillas skirmishing with Texas Rangers for nine long years. Polk, naturally, didn't view the matter in the same light as Mexico. However, as a matter of interpretation, we don't know why he chose the Rio Grande as his line. We don't know whether Polk deliberately chose that to cause war, or whether he earnestly believed it was a legitimate, if figurative, line in the sand. It may have been that Polk wanted to secure the permanent loyalty of Texas by enforcing their full borders as per the treaty. Regardless, this all made a very convenient opportunity for President Polk. He could very plausibly claim that he was merely defending the borders of Texas against Mexico. However, Polk was also forced to do this because there was no way on earth Congress was going to authorize an invasion of Mexico, regardless of what Polk's wanted, said, or did. The Democrats had a small majority in Congress, yes. Declaring war is a huge deal, and without a clear casus belli, few were venturing out on that particular limb. Besides, General Taylor was even then showing the flag in central Texas, making the new American state entirely secure. Now, Zachary Taylor is another great American, as we are about to discover, though today often forgotten. Born to more than a little wealth and privilege in Virginia, Taylor became an officer in the Army in 1808, and served with distinction in the War of 1812. Thirty years later, he retained his commission, even earning the nickname Old Rough and Ready for his disinterest in pomp and circumstance, as well as being a hardy outdoorsman. Most men of Taylor's age were looking to spend time with their grandchildren. Taylor went off to fight a massive war with Mexico. Now, this point gets even odder than it may seem at first. Taylor was a staunch Whig, and like most Whigs, was directing some very suspicious sidelong glances at Polk. Occupying Texas following the annexation was one thing, but Taylor suspected that Polk intended to use him as a provocation to Mexico. Whigs, including most of the army officers in Texas, often sympathized with Mexico in this matter and wanted to avoid war. Ulysses S. Grant, at that time a young officer in Taylor's command, later wrote that he viewed the conflict as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. This in part clues us into the world view of the military and the Whigs at the time. Defending the national borders against invasion made sense. Bullying in Mexico did not. Well, Taylor didn't like any of this, but he obeyed legitimate orders. Moving his forces from Louisiana to Texas in the summer of 1845, Taylor began drilling his men securely in camp at Corpus Christi. This accomplished everything required at that moment. And indeed, Taylor's thorough military professionalism shone through. The disciplined regulars formed a neat and healthy camp, and Taylor directed scouting to gain as much knowledge of his surroundings as could be asked. Remember that Texas was still a known country to most Americans. And most of the regular army assembled here, including nearly all the men who would one day become the leading generals of the Civil War, including Meade, Grant, Longstreet, Bragg, and many more. This time of relative cheer could only last so long. Once the diplomatic mission failed, well, Polk was commander-in-chief and that was that. On January 13, 1846, Polk ordered Taylor to move on the Rio Grande, implicitly claiming the entire region north of it. The orders as arrived contained a careful note of ambiguity. 
Indeed, they were phrased in such a way as to also be directly unconstitutional, because in theory they allowed Taylor to make war on his own hook, even summoning militia to do so. This was, quite frankly, an explosive message. Taylor, for his part, recognized the problem and kept very strictly within the bounds of legal nicety. Yet whatever his doubts about its decency, Taylor could not ignore the basic thrust of this order. Had the Rio Grande boundary been clearly outside of Texas, he might well have been within his rights to refuse as an officer bound by honor and duty. But the politician Polk was the kind of man who could always make the most of ambiguous ground, which is exactly what happened. Accordingly, in early March of 1846, Taylor finished moving into the disputed area. This venture alone required considerable logistical planning and support from the Navy, simply due to a lack of supplies or bases from which to operate. Taylor had to effectively build all this fresh. By the end of the month, however, he had moved his thousands and created a new port at Point Isabel, on a protected lagoon northeast of Matamoros, and had moved his main force inland. Taylor constructed a fort on the north bank of the Rio Grande, directly across from Matamoros. Here, within cannon range, the Americans faced a none-too-pleased force of Mexican soldiers. And yet, there was still no war. Despite the tense situation, the two armies avoided more provocation, and probably all involved hoped the governments could sort things out. Unfortunately, neither Mexico nor the United States executives made much of an effort to avoid any such thing. In Mexico City, Paredes resolved to muster whatever force he could to resist, and first sent General Pedro de Ampudia, and then overall commando Mariano Arista, along with several thousand reinforcements to drive the Americans back to the Nueces at least. He also proclaimed that this wasn't a war, but a purely defensive move to protect the border. Ampudia and Arista both blundered here, the first by sending a threatening letter to Taylor, which tipped him off of what was about to occur, the latter by dispatching a fateful cavalry raid. On April 26, 1846, a group of 1,600 Mexican lancers ventured north of the Rio Grande and ambushed an 80-man U.S. cavalry patrol sent to watch them. Not surprisingly, the tiny American force went down in a one-sided defeat, with most taken prisoner. While it may have been politically necessary for Paredes to defend Mexican territory, this would have terrible consequences and make avoiding a war impossible. Worse yet, the Polk administration and the Senate were from their perspective still wrangling over diplomacy, making the Mexican attack appear like unprovoked bloodshed. Now, of course, you might wonder how Polk turned his own quasi-invasion of Mexican territory into an excuse to invade Mexican territory. That may sound absolutely mad, but Polk was nothing if not brash and cunning. On May 9th, after talking to the very pro-war Slidell upon the latter's return to Washington, Polk sent a hilariously overblown message to Congress trying to get military action in motion, which most likely would have failed. But here's where the cavalry skirmish becomes important, because news of that arrived within a scant few hours of Polk's request. He was then in a much better position to demand much more from Congress two days later, as the full import of what happened swept over the city. I'm just going to quote Polk here, because it gets dramatic. The strong desire to establish peace with Mexico on liberal and honorable terms, and the readiness of this government to regulate and adjust our boundary and other causes of difference with that power, on such fair and equitable principles as would lead to permanent relations with the most friendly nature, induced me in September last to seek the reopening of diplomatic relations between the two countries. The movement of the troops to the Del Norte was made by the commanding general under positive instructions to abstain from all aggressive acts towards Mexico or Mexican citizens, and to regard the relations between that republic and the United States as peaceful, unless she should declare war or commit acts of hostility indicative of a state of war. He was specially directed to protect private property and restrict personal rights. A party of dragoons of 63 men and officers were on the same day dispatched from the American camp upon the Rio del Norte, upon its left bank, to ascertain whether the Mexican troops had crossed or were preparing to cross the river became engaged with a large body of these troops, and after a short affair in which some sixteen were killed and wounded, appear to have been surrounded and compelled to surrender. The grievous wrongs perpetrated by Mexico upon our citizens throughout a long period of years remained unredressed, and solemn treaties pledging her public faith for this redress have been disregarded. 
a government either unable or unwilling to enforce the execution of such treaties fails to perform one of its plainest duties. So, my apologies to President Polk if I got his accent wrong. However, on the substance of the message, while much of this was false, or at least very misleading, but enough was true that it proved extremely difficult for Congress to avoid giving Polk the authorization he wanted. Of course, Whigs, and even a number of Democrats, took one look at the situation and started asking uncomfortable questions, but they couldn't stop the flow of events. Without a direct telegraph line, it took weeks to send news back and forth, and Congress had to respond immediately. There was no choice except to support the army at this time, and furthermore, only the safest of Whig politicians would risk a vote against war, given that such would destroy their political standing entirely. One Whig congressman sourly noted that he now favored war, pestilence, and famine, given the disposition of the American people. Democrats sat only a little bit happier on that same fence, since even John C. Calhoun took a stand completely against this war, and many Northern Democrats had been furious with the administration for compromising on Oregon. But at the end of the day, most did want some territorial expansion, and loyalty to the party remained a big deal. They, of course, faced the same political challenges as Whigs. Expansion was popular at this moment, and Mexico really had just attacked Americans. In practice, those facts dominated the political scene. For now. This put events in the capable hands of General Taylor, and he promptly set about driving the Mexican forces out of the disputed territory. His first problem was the question of supply. With an unknown force prowling behind him, Taylor by necessity took his army and reinforced Port Isabel. Without that base of supply, he would quickly be cut off and destroyed. This required leaving Fort Texas garrisoned on the Rio Grande. Major Brown, in charge of those defenses, confidently stated that he could and would hold on as long as needed. Taylor then moved to Port Isabel and strengthened its defenses until he felt certain it could hold out just as well. After securing communications, Taylor began his return trip on the same road towards Fort Texas and Matamoros on May 8th, when he suddenly discovered General Arista and his whole army at a place called Palo Alto. Taylor needed to clear the Mexican force in his front and open this pathway, and therefore he would need to attack. Arista invited the attack, seeing that it should expose Taylor to overwhelming force. On paper, the Mexican army had a sizable advantage. Arista brought well over 3,000 men into the fight, while Taylor had little over 2,000. Further, Arista had more artillery, more powerful artillery, and a defensive position protected by a thick chaparral, or heavy brush, with both flanks thoroughly secure. Meanwhile, Taylor had to attack. He'd also protect a sizable wagon train brought to resupply him. Arista, and probably most observers, would have expected this battle to be a completely one-sided affair. And it was for the Americans. Taylor relied heavily on his flying artillery during the battle, designed by an innovative young officer named Major Samuel Ringold. Ringold created a system that combined a sturdy gun carriage that could quickly move artillery to a trouble spot during a fight, a considerable improvement on the Napoleonic artillery system. This proved a crucial advantage at Palo Alto and elsewhere in the war since it allowed American forces to bring overwhelming firepower to bear anywhere on the battlefield. By contrast, Mexican artillery was often heavy, but slow to maneuver and reliant on static battle lines. American officer training stressed artillery technique deeply and trained hard. Finally, Mexican artillery lacked explosive shells and instead fired solid cannonballs. American artillery could therefore disrupt a Mexican formation or counterfire a battery much more lethally. During the opening phase of Palo Alto, Taylor realized he couldn't advance his infantry in good formation over the rough terrain, exactly as Arista planned. But the artillery on its own required less space. They could maneuver, and did so, driving back the Mexican lines with withering fire. This forced the Mexican left and center back at an angle, opening a major vulnerability for the American infantry to potentially exploit. Trying to recover his position, General Arista ordered a lancer charge, but this recoiled when the infantry on the American right flank immediately switched to defensive formation. The Mexican cavalry's own flank then came under more artillery fire, and so they pulled back. 
A second attack on the opposite flank also failed when the 8th Infantry demonstrated the same quick and disciplined response. The Mexican soldiers, standing in line, receiving artillery fire all day, wavered when their officers tried to push them forward, and unfortunately any who did advance faced an iron wall of American shot and shell. Seeing that his soldiers were taking far too many casualties for a defensive fight, with little to show for it, Arista backed down and by sunset had retired, partly hidden by the smoke from a fire that broke out in the underbrush. By day's end, the Americans had suffered a mere 50 casualties, almost all wounded. Unfortunately for Taylor, one of those few Americans mortally wounded was Major Ringgold. Still, the Mexican army had lost over 200 killed and wounded and were now on the run, shocked not so much by a defeat but by the speed and suddenness of it. The Mexican force regrouped quickly, however, and prepared for battle the next day at Resaca de la Pana, a few miles closer to the Rio Grande. The Resaca was a dry gulch on the bed of the Rio Grande, before a long-forgotten course change moved it south. It also effectively formed a strong trench line to protect the infantry from artillery fire, with plenty of cover. Aristo was no fool, and he gave some thought to planning the next battle, so it would not become a repeat of the first. Additionally, Arista also withdrew his siege force from the attack on Fort Texas and therefore received necessary reinforcements. However, one problem of the Mexican position was that it curved around like a hook, which along with the scrub and trees made it difficult to coordinate. It also partly pinned Arista's forces in somewhat the same way a fortification can, making it more difficult to launch attacks even as it added strength to resist them. Either way, it turned out no better for the Mexican army in the end. Taylor arrived at the site in mid-afternoon of May 9th. His force nearly faced disaster when the brush hid a column of Mexican cavalry intent on attacking the artillery, who barely managed to turn and fire on them first. Then, as the Americans closed with the main Mexican line, the U.S. Dragoons judged the correct spot to charge in and overrun the Mexican artillery in turn. Famously, however, they captured Mexican General La Vega, only to immediately uncapture him as they had to turn around or be shot to pieces from all sides. However, the 8th U.S. Infantry once again showed its mettle. They followed up and captured the guns and the general for good. Shortly thereafter, American forces outflanked the western end of the Mexican position as well. The net effect of the combined movement was to suddenly turn the entire Osaka into a trap, when American artillery and musketry essentially commanded the entire field. The Mexican force turned and ran. They had to, or be shot down from all sides. General Arista tried to lead a last-ditch charge to recover, but there was no redeeming this fight. The final toll of this battle was around 100 casualties in Taylor's force, but between killed, wounded, and missing, Arista had lost another 500, as well as vital supplies, arms, and money. The casualty numbers may sound small, but recall that these armies are equally small. Arista's force had lost a fifth or more of its manpower in two days. Few armies can eat that casualty rate without stopping for a reorganization. Additionally, although many in Mexico expected the Americans to put up a stiff fight, they could not have expected to be outmatched so decisively, which hurt morale. Despite the problems of the Mexican state, remember that its officers and soldiers were often seasoned veterans and reasonably well equipped by the standards of most modern forces at that time. Yet within days of the start of fighting, they faced two rough defeats and forced to withdraw south of the Rio Grande line. Only the small size of the American force had prevented total disaster. For his part, General Taylor might have preferred to stay on the offensive, but a delay became necessary. Since the war had not begun with an offensive plan, he now had to devise one, and he soon received large numbers of volunteer reinforcements. But both volunteer officers and soldiers needed training and hardening to be of any use in the field. As a minor coda to all this, in one of the last bombardments at Fort Texas, Major Jacob Brown sadly perished, one of only a handful of casualties in the sturdy fort. The site was then renamed Fort Brown in his honor, and would eventually become the modern city of Brownsville, still opposite Matamoros today. So let this be a lesson to you all. Die in the defense of your fortification and get a city named after you. I'm sure we can all see the practical applications here. The pause in the action brings us to another new leader of Mexico in this dire conflict, and his name is Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana? Yes, for real. He's back. 
No, it doesn't make any sense. It's the kind of thing that in 500 years historians will be claiming is a silly folktale. But indeed, Santa Ana will once again be returning to take over the war effort for the Mexican side, although he has not yet retaken formal political control over the state. Even stranger, all this was mostly Polk's fault. That said, we'll leave the political ploys for next episode and move on to the specific consequences for Taylor and his army here. Santa Ana's influence changed things considerably. The man himself had not yet arrived on the field of battle, but in the wake of the losses north of the Rio Grande, Santa Ana ordered a change in leadership. With Arista having lost two battles in a row, General Pedro de Ampudia took over. This was problematic for a great many reasons, especially as Arista believed that de Ampudia was one of the biggest reasons for the preceding defeat. In his view, and this very well may have been true, Ampudia spent his time sniping at Arista instead of preparing his command for battling Americans. However, Santa Anna also knew of Ampudia's experience as a bold fighter, who had led both crushing assaults and stern defenses against Texan forces. Indeed, General Ampudia remained a thorough professional and he also aimed to fight. He would have need to do so, since Taylor realized the necessity of invading northern Mexico in order to actually win the war. Taylor spent the summer of 1846 gathering his forces and drilling his troops. This was of particular importance because, as mentioned, so many of his new army had just arrived, all fresh volunteers who rushed down to Texas eager for fighting and glory, often with ridiculous notions about how fast and easy the war would go. But Taylor needed these since the regular army simply did not grow enough to handle the entire war, and any new army recruits would have required training too. The volunteers offered as many headaches as they solved problems. Thoroughly untried and uninterested in military discipline, many militiamen proved vulnerable to disease and, quite frankly, became a threat to themselves and everyone around them. The regular army, though often stiff-necked and bureaucratic, kept tightly to proven practices that worked. A regular's campsite would be clean as a church and orderly as a Roman fort, with water sourced properly. The volunteers tended to pitch their tents haphazardly, and were lucky if they remembered to place their latrines downstream of the cooking water. They had to learn how to march, how to shoot in an organized fashion, and how to accept and execute orders. Even more troublesome for Taylor was the matter of criminal activity. In times of military conflict, certain people tend to go off the rails and behave very badly indeed. Far from home, family, or the law they know, they may steal or indulge in pointless violence. While on the whole, the militia may not have been unusually aggressive, their own volunteer officers rarely reined them in. Some elements of Taylor's force, and the Texan recruits in particular, earned an infamous reputation for rape and pillage wherever the officers weren't actively present and stopping them. Some of these stories may have been exaggerated in the telling, for they often are, but an ugly reality of personal and sometimes sexual violence lay behind it. Significantly, the express policy of both Taylor and Polk was that Mexico ought to be treated as a friendly nation, with which hostilities had unfortunately broken out due to misguided leadership. The Americans purchased supplies instead of demanding them, and enforced the law in Matamoros impartially. In addition, Taylor published a bilingual newspaper to ease tensions. All that being said, once the innumerable preparations had been dealt with, Taylor planned a quick march west towards Monterey. The city of Monterey blocked the long road to San Luis Potosi and Mexico City beyond. Therefore, in August, Taylor began his advance with 6,000 men a tricky proposition given the relatively dry climate and lack of transportation. At this point, Santa Ana made his first real move in the war, ordering de Ampudia to retire and cede the city. This was a reasonable strategic decision, and might actually have been the best option from a purely military standpoint, but again, would spark a serious material and morale loss, essentially ceding northern Mexico. Crucially for what is about to occur, General de Ampudia refused this order, he declared that his troops were tired of retreat and intended to stop the Yankees here and now. It's impossible ultimately to know who made the right call in this moment, especially in light of later events, but there were also advantages to this plan. The city of Monterey had many solid buildings and even a purpose-built fortress, which would and did provide excellent defenses against any attacker. American troops, as we've seen, 
focused on using their mobile artillery on the battlefield, a poor match for either street fighting or blasting forts. Additionally, Taylor would be subsisting at the end of a long supply line, while Ampudia would have a good source close at hand. Finally, Ampudia had a helpful advantage in numbers, with around a thousand more soldiers than Taylor. Zachary Taylor finished closing in on the city on the 19th of September without fighting, but spent the next two days preparing for his first assault, including driving back a probe from General Ampudia. As Major Joseph Mansfield scouted the Mexican position, Taylor moved forces to avoid the powerful Black Fort positioned north of the city. Instead, he launched an assault against the eastern side, where the Mexicans had put together an impromptu defense at an unfinished but sturdy tannery building. On the 21st, General Taylor ordered his attack here, which almost immediately ran into murderous fire from three different positions. In fact, the Mexican defenses ran deep, and assorted buildings covered for one another. American units fell back in partial disorder, but just enough penetrated far enough to start firing into the tannery itself. This then fell in short order as the troops panicked, but Taylor insisted on a withdrawal that night himself. Zachary Taylor, for once in his life, found himself shocked by the carnage and dismayed by the sheer amount of blood spilled to gain one meager structure. However, Taylor had ironically nearly won the battle already. Back on the 20th, Taylor had detached General Worth to lead a portion of his army to circle around the city to the west. The general proved his worth, first crossing the river to take Federation Hill, only to recross and conquer Independence Hill in turn. These two key positions placed American arms atop the dominant heights, and had been carried out with remarkable courage, speed, and success. Worth that followed these feats by plunging into the city, and adding a second front to the battle. There followed a lull in fighting, as both sides regrouped. General de Ampudia withdrew some of his troops from exposed positions. Meanwhile, on the American side, Texas militiamen shared information on how to fight in urban environments with others, and also regular army units, a fact which proved crucial the next day. Remember that Texans were at this point among the most experienced soldiers in the continent, having been engaged in fighting with Mexico for the decade following their own independence war. Then, on the 23rd, Taylor again advanced his forces, and this time there seemed to be no stopping them. The Americans now attacked from both east and west simultaneously. No longer caught off guard by the urban environment, they became watchful for ambushes or surprises, driving back the Mexican soldiers wherever they met, while suffering far few casualties in turn. Though they were unable to completely take the city that day, the Americans cleared a path forward and took a flanking position from which to shell Mexican strongpoints, including the main powder magazine. Seeing the jig was up, General Ampudia knew Monterey could not hold for much longer. Accordingly, Ampudia negotiated a temporary truce with Taylor, which allowed him to remove his soldiers. However, Taylor critically stripped the Mexican army of its war material, including artillery, rendering it essentially useless until completely resupplied. Certainly, Taylor would have hoped to discourage more Mexican soldiers from taking up arms against him in the future, and perhaps believed a little generosity on his part might pay large dividends in the future. Although no one knew it at the time, this became in hindsight the key turning point of the war, although many battles still lay ahead. For many Mexican soldiers, it seemed like defeat might now be inevitable. After all, if they couldn't stop the American invaders even with every advantage, what possible opportunity could they have for stopping them anywhere, as the Americans assembled even larger and more powerful forces? Second, it led Santa Ana into becoming personally involved in battles, which would have dire consequences for his war effort. On the American side, events proved even more volatile, if that can be believed. When allowing de Ampudia to walk away, Taylor also agreed to a two-month armistice. In truth, this was no great concession, because he needed to regroup almost as much as de Ampudia. The two months would let him obtain more reinforcements, rest his existing soldiers, and resupply. Unfortunately for General Taylor, President Polk did not see it this way. In early October, Polk received word of the truce and became absolutely furious. He couldn't fathom why Taylor failed to advance aggressively. 
On Polk's map, it was simple. Taylor was supposed to march south. What he didn't understand, however, is that Taylor had a huge deficit in transportation and needed to cross a large stretch of dry country. But Polk had another reason to be angry with Taylor, for he was beginning to worry that Taylor might build enough support to run for the presidency, following decisive victory after victory in the field. In truth, this had been a long-time concern for Polk, and he had already been scheming in various ways to strip Taylor of his command. At this time, however, he ordered Taylor to renounce the armistice, although by the time Taylor heard of that order, it was nearly over anyway. More crucially, though, Polk ordered a second coastal invasion to proceed under the leadership of General Winfield Scott. Taylor would indeed spend most of the remaining war cooling his heels, but before then, he had one last brilliant act, which would cement his reputation as a great commander. Following the defeat at Monterey, Santa Anna gathered together an army of over 20,000 men, an impressively large army for this war, or for any conflict in the Americas to date. In January of 1847, his force had finally finished mustering, and he headed north towards Monterey. He aimed to attack Taylor head-on and overwhelm him completely. And, by a stroke of luck, Mexican loyalists captured an American officer carrying a dispatch that revealed two things. First, Scott would be massing an army to invade Veracruz. And second, to do this he had just stripped Taylor's force of its manpower. Taylor discovered this news himself at almost the same time, and for once nearly exploded in rage. Despite having won victory and honor time and time again, he was now being left exposed at the end of a dangerously long supply line, with most of his army stolen from behind his back. He had somewhat different directives from Polk and Scott, both of which were deeply unrealistic and streaked in the treacherous dealings of capital politics. Worse yet, he discovered one copy of the orders had gone missing along with the officer bearing it, but could only guess where it ended up. However, fortune smiled on Taylor once again. Mexican soldiers retreating south from Monterey and Saltillo had deliberately destroyed water stores to slow the Americans. But Santa Ana would need to cross the same landscape in the first weeks of 1847. Venturing north, Santa Ana nearly wrecked his force, driving them without the proper rest or resupply until a large number had fallen out or deserted. By the time he arrived and faced off against Taylor at a place called Buena Vista, he had only 15,000 in the field. Now, this was not just apathy towards his troops' well-being, although we've certainly seen that behavior from Santa Ana before. Rather, he was on a very tight schedule because he needed to defeat Taylor and then a vout face to defend from Scott. Nonetheless, Santa Ana still had triple Taylor's force and he knew it, the latter of which had not only been stripped of numbers to feed Scott's growing army, but specifically had lost some of its best regular troops and officers. Additionally, Taylor only discovered Santa Ana's advance when it was nearly too late. On February 20th, 1847, Taylor's reconnaissance force encountered the vanguard of the Mexican army. They fell back and alerted the commander. Aware that Santa Ana could easily outflank him, Taylor formed up his force more or less where its advance had been halted, at a spot where he could engage along a narrower front at a place called Buena Vista. I want to specifically point out here that General John Wool was the first man on the scene, and he chose the exact spot where to fight the battle. If not for his good eye and quick thinking, events might have gone completely differently. The battle began on February 22nd, when Santa Ana sent a small force on the American right flank, on the Saltillo Road. This failed, but he hoped it might serve as a distraction for action the next day. If the Americans were looking to their right, they might weaken their left. The next morning, Santa Ana dispatched his nearly overpowering attack, 7,000 Mexican soldiers streaming against the American left. These men hit the second Indiana like a sledgehammer, and eventually panicked its commander. The outmatched volunteer unit fled, but they and their reinforcements stayed on the field long enough to allow Colonel Jefferson Davis to arrive and prevent the Mexican forces from getting into the rear of the American line. Additionally, a wide swing of the Mexican cavalry was driven off, though with considerable difficulty, 
and thus a rear attack was prevented or the destruction of the supply base. Thus steadied, Taylor's soldiers presented a strong defense and fended off every subsequent attack, which were piecemeal small affairs. In the early evening, Captain Braxton Bragg moved forward and broke up any final offensive, ostensibly following a quip by Taylor to give him hell Bragg, or something to that effect. Sadly, the day's fighting saw the death of many good soldiers in a futile charge, including Henry Clay Jr., yes, the son of that Henry Clay, as well as Colonel John Hardin, at once a friend and rival to Abraham Lincoln. For the Americans, this was the nearest run battle of the war, as at every moment they might have been overcome by the sheer numbers attacking them. However, Santa Anna deployed his forces piecemeal, while Taylor made expert use of the terrain, combined with the initiative and drive at the lower levels of command. Though bloodied, he held off the Mexican advance long enough to stave off disaster, which in this case was victory. As dawn arrived on the 24th, Santa Ana had already begun to withdraw south even as Taylor expected more attacks. Santa Ana's generals advised the retreat, perhaps believing that they would simply feed more bodies into the pyres of war than they could have spared given the growing threat against Veracruz. They also noted the army had run so short of supplies that its soldiers could not be directed well in battle. They were just more interested in a good meal than national liberation, at least in the hungry moment. The Americans had lost around 600 killed or wounded, but they had extracted 1,500 Mexican casualties in turn. Yet even more Mexican soldiers had gone missing, or simply deserted and walked off. On that second day, then, Available Mexican forces still held a three-to-one advantage, but combined with the losses sustained on the march, it may well have been that the army simply couldn't fight another battle in an organized fashion. They lacked a logistical base, and cohesion had begun to break down among the troops, many of whom probably viewed De Santa Ana with bitter disdain. The retreat, unfortunately, saw the Mexican army further disintegrate as men unnecessarily died in the poorly organized countermarch. Santa Anna, for his part, managed to encourage even more desertion by a rather too obvious disinterest in his soldiers' welfare. Politically, General Santa Anna tried to salvage the situation by simply declaring that it had been a great victory and waving captured battle flags upon his return to Mexico City. But this was only a temporary gain and did nothing to repair the collapsing military situation, nor did it conceal the obvious fact that Taylor hadn't fled and Santa Anna came back with half the men he'd brought north. With the Battle of Buena Vista over, events moved south and Taylor had little more to do in this war. Yet this new campaign was only possible because of Taylor's heroic victory. It could easily have turned into a devastating rout of the American army, which would have immediately transformed Scott's campaign from a seaborne invasion against central Mexico into a desperate recovery in the north. The war might have dragged on far longer and perhaps ended differently. Taylor, therefore, set the stage on which Scott would finally win a surprisingly permanent peace. <laughs>